is the first of three evening sessions, um, drawing together a number of threads and three threads and themes um, about Morden Road Church and some of the distinctives about us. I want to cover three things tonight, which is hopefully you've got on your um, at the top of your uh, sheets there. I um, think a little bit about what it means that we are a family and why that matters. A little bit about what it means to be elder-led but congregationally governed. Um, and we'll talk a bit about why congregations are important in terms of decision-making process and where that comes from in Scripture, um, as well as that, then, what it means to have elders, who elders are and what they are to do. Um, I want to think firstly, though, about um, the different metaphors used, particularly in the New Testament. Um, I have got here the four main ones. All right, you've got another one. Yeah. Um, the four main ones are, as you can see there, body, marriage, buildings and family. Um, you could probably have included field, olive tree, flock and vine as well. Um, and to be honest with you, I'm just going to focus in on family, but I just thought it would be worth showing you um, some of the other metaphors. And just if you'd like to do a bit of due diligence, you don't have to take my word for it, but why family I think is one of the most important. Um, so let's just go, uh, first of all, body. Um, as you see, I will just kind of read some of the verses. There'll be some of the other verses there as well. But if you know your New Testament, you know your um, letters from Paul particularly, you will know that he often uses the metaphor of body to describe churches in different ways. So there we go, Romans 12. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another, or as other translations put it, we belong to one another. Um, uh, 1 Corinthians 10, we who are many are one body. Some churches say that as they uh, share the Lord's Supper together. They break the bread. Um, Ephesians 4, equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ. Or again, um, Colossians 1, in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. So God uses the metaphor of body to describe church. Christ is the head, we are all members and we serve one another and we're given gifts for the sake of the body. Another one then, marriage as well. You get it in Revelation at the very end, you see there. I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. As the city people descends, so they're described as the bride. You get it as well in Ephesians 5, of course. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I intend that it refers to Christ and the church. So human marriage is a picture of um, the marriage. The Lord Jesus is the groom, the church is the bride. Um, another one then, buildings. And you could actually split these out into um, God's house and God's household. Just like these different, different emphases and nuances there. 1 Timothy 3, um, I'm writing these things to you so that you may know that how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and a buttress of the truth. 1 Timothy 3, or 1 Peter 2, the church is the temple of God, but with living stones with Christ as the foundation and corner and the Holy Spirit indwelling it. Uh, 1 Peter 4, judgment begins with the household of God. Uh, 1 Corinthians 3, don't you know that you, plural, are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy, and you are that temple, you plural. Now later in Corinthians, actually in chapter 10, um, it's you singular, I'm talking about sexual sin particularly. Um, but you, your, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. He'll go on later to say that as individuals, but here is a plurality. Um, so those are kind of four, three and two, if you like, in terms of the metaphors used about church. Um, family, though, I think is the key one, um, and you'll work out in a moment why I'm stressing that. Um, so again, some verses. Uh, I will be a father to you, says Paul, and you shall be sons and daughters to me. So says the Lord Almighty. Says the Lord is the Father, as Paul writes to the church in Corinth. Um, sons and daughters of the Lord Almighty. Um, you get that bit in one Timothy. Sorry, one Tim two. That should be no. I'm on to Titus. 1 Tim 5 verse 1. Um, do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters, in all 
purity. And so a way to understand how church members ought to relate together. This is writing to young Pastor Timothy of this church, probably in Ephesus. Um, relate to people within the church as if they were your family. Um, then you get uh, Titus. Titus 1. Um, we will come on to this in a bit as well. But Paul is telling Titus to go around Crete and to put elders in every town where churches have been planted. Um, what those churches were like with their elders, I don't know. What that looked like, I don't know. But um, Titus is to go around um, and put leadership in place. He describes elders in this way, being blameless, faithful to his wife, a man whose children believe and not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Since an overseer manages God's household, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violence, not pursuing dishonest gain, rather he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy message that's been taught, so he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. Because those were the big ones, but then, I've given it away on the sheet. But right the way through the New Testament, we get familial language as people are writing, because they, are, they often write to brothers and sisters. Um, all the translations, just brothers. Um, the word is Adelphoi. I think we can rightly say brothers and sisters if we're translating it into our context now. Um, but I've just put the example there from Galatians uh, that you get again and again and again and again and again. Paul is writing to a church, in fact, who are in trouble and are being duped by false teaching, but he describes them as brothers and sisters, brothers and sisters, brothers and sisters, right the way through. So that is the refrain. Um, Which just makes you realise this is an important thing for us to get to grips with. If that is, if you like, Paul's preferred um, introduction or preferred way of relating to somebody or talking to somebody as you write write to a church then the idea of being a brother and a sister is really important come join us Jobs have you got a spare one or did I I I get you two Jordan we are on um, the second side of the first page um, and we are just thinking about what it means that family or kind of familial language is the overarching metaphor used in the New Testament to describe church. That's basically what you missed, so (laughs) not a lot. Um, uh, And we've just talked about Galatians at the top there, brothers and sisters, so again and again and again, Paul will go through and he will describe it, and we just kind of read over it, and we don't even think about it. But he's showing us that family is such an important metaphor. Um, You've got other examples in there. Um, I think we did a bit of work in in pairs to do, why don't you do that, twos and threes. Um, if, within the text box there, if family seems to be the overarching metaphor used for the local church in the New Testament, how might this shape our understanding of church? Does that make sense? So if field was the most common metaphor, then that might shape our understanding of church, but family seems to be, and therefore, so what? Is that in the four verses above it, or just... That is generally, just generally, yeah. Um, so you probably want to be thinking, what did family mean in their context? And therefore, what does family mean for us in our context? And how might that shape what church ought to feel like or look like? So, what did you come up with? How should this metaphor shape our understanding or our experience of church life? If at all. Interesting. Le- interesting. We'll come into that. But yes, great. I started by thinking it, it was familiar. It is familiar to everyone. The context of a family, and the way yep. it's like, is familiar. Yep. So it's an experience of being from God. Yep. Thank you. I'm, I'm actually just going to repeat these for the um, for the tape, so we don't have tapes anymore. Uh, Internet. Um, so we said less organisational and more relational. We said common shared experience. We said fatherhood of God. Mm-hmm. Yep. And um, so thinking about this sort of thing, we need to be in the culture. Sure. The unashamed human rights that 
Ja. Brilliant. Thank you. Yeah. through and think where does kind of family come up in Paul's letters and any stuff there we can relate thinking Ephesians 5 or 6 or those kinds of places what about the way And therefore, because we love, we'll deal with stuff. Need to be. Yeah. Go on. Yeah, lovely. Great. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. So, acceptance, regardless of. Yeah, and you know that's. So the bit in Ephesians six, I was just thinking, I hadn't thought of it until I was. You guys were talking actually, but. Um, Dads are to love, but not to exasperate your kids. And just that would be an exasperate is kind of a, I think a heavy-handedness in the context then, and where you may be quite a sort of patriarchal dominant society. To actually not exasperate your children is to lift up the helpless in some sense and protect them. Um, so yeah, just again that kind of idea of. Certainly is. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so the husband being prepared to put self to death for the sake of his spouse, absolutely. Another thing I think that you have to say about the family is it's not Imagine you've got, we've not, okay, do you remember, uh, there was a family at Broadland Road a few years ago who had five kids. Um, some of you will have been around for them. And getting their five children out of the house every morning for school or for church or everything was a, you had to work hard and there had to be systems and there had to be organisation and there had to be, so it couldn't just be, so when you've got one or two, as it's from experience, when you've got one or two children, it's slightly easier when you've got four things get complicated and so we need more than just kind of the organic you know commune hippie sort of church is all about loving each other man Um, but there needs to be some kind of a balance of yes there is this relational um, element that is really important and yet there are so you get it in 1 Timothy 5 as well where you've got widows being there's a list of widows who are to be provided for Um, so there are systems in place to look after people who are in need and who are being cared for. So I'm not saying at all um, that we're not to be relational. There needs to be a level of organisation to make things happen. I reckon we're at fairly... The size of Morgan Road means that is possible. I can imagine if we were ten times bigger, I've got um, friends at bigger churches um, across the pond... Uh, there needs to be, you have to work very hard. The bigger you are, the harder you have to work to be small and to have that relational element. Um, where we are, whatever we are, 150 on a Sunday morning, you can just about know everyone still, just about, um, which is great. Um, which brings us neatly onto this next thing then. So I wanted to start off with the family thing, to just have that as the overarching 
yes, that does set the tone in lots of ways, but that doesn't mean we're just a sort of an amorphous mess. Um, and I wanted to help us think through what it means to have elders um, who make decisions and what, what elders are, but before that, to think through why we have a thing called congregational government. Um, I was going to give you a definition of congregationalism. Um, I've not put it on the, uh, on the handout here. But I'll, I'll read it a couple of times for you. Um, uh, the entire church body has the final authority under God's word in matters of doctrine, brackets, and by implication choosing leaders, close brackets, and discipline, brackets, and by implication choosing members, close, close brackets. Okay, so the entire church body has the final authority under God's word about his doctrine and discipline. Doctrine leads to who lead us, points to who lead us. Discipline essentially leads to who, who we are. Um, so therefore the congregation guards what the gospel is and who gospel people are. Um, and I will try and show you where that comes from. Uh, the reality is there's a tension within the scriptures. Um, again, you can see on your hand up there. So, Sometimes, in the Bible, the entire church is addressed. Um, sometimes, as Paul writes, or as you hear um, the apostles speaking in Acts, they are speaking to the entire congregation in front of them. So you get it in Matthew 18, which is a famous, important passage when it comes to how to do church discipline. But there comes a point when the entire church, at the end of the day, needs to make a decision about whether this person it is right for them to be a part of the body. Um, you get it in Acts 6 as well. Do you remember the um, Hellenistic widows are being overlooked and so deacons are chosen and the local church, the congregation who are being spoken to there are those who, who basically suggest who deacons ought to be. Um, if you were around before Christmas you might remember we did a series in Corinth and in 2 Corinthians 2 um, you get this immoral brother being welcomed back in and Paul says that essentially they've repented bring them back which links in with 1 Corinthians 5 probably where this person was excluded there for um, an incestuous relationship and then this is really interesting in Galatians I have to say as I prepared this last week or so this has been um, something I've not quite spotted before but you remember that bit in Galatians 1 where um, uh, verse 9 Paul talks about a different gospel. As we've already said, so now I say again, if anyone's preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let them be under God's curse. You know, think, that, that sounds quite harsh. But the thing that's striking or that struck me is if you track it back he's writing to the churches in Galatia. And I think I've always kind of thought of it as He's writing to church leaders. But actually he's not. He's specific and quite explicit here that he's writing to church to churches plural in Galatia. Um, which means they are facing Paul's anger for accepting a false gospel as a corporate thing, which is striking. Um, so he's talking about discipline, he's talking about how have you been so easily duped? but talking to the congregation, the body. Um, which is just uh, very interesting. Every single Christian, every church member, therefore, um, I think is going to give an account to the Lord for the role that he or she plays in preserving the gospel for the next generation. Um, have we tolerated false teachers? Have we, have we allowed unrepentance sin within the body. That seems to be what some of these the implications come from these, these verses. Um, entire churches are being addressed for false teaching like in Galatia and for immoral behaviour and allowing it and not excluding it um, like in Corinth. Um, Corinth ties back with Matthew. And then the, the deacon thing is interesting. We'll come into that um, on another week when we talk about deacons. So, there's a tension because sometimes the entire church is addressed and that seems to be primarily to do with gospel truth or gospel people in one sense. Just to boil it right down. 
is, is false doctrine being taught and are we accepting it? Are false, are unrepentant, sinful, gross sinful people and being allowed and just ignored or are we dealing with it? So there's one tension. The other side though is sometimes you get Christians being called to submit to their leaders. Um, I will read you these verses out um, but I put them there for you. Hebrews um, 13, again these are for people in pastoral ministry, they are uh, big verses in Hebrews 13. Um, uh, Verse 7, remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. So the example of your leaders, um, both through what they say and how they live. Verse 17, have confidence in your leaders and submit to their authority because they keep watch over you as those who must give an account. Do this so that their work will be a joy, not a burden, for that will be of no benefit to you. Um, so I think one day, um, church leaders will have to give an account for the way they've looked after sheep. Um, which is one of the reasons we have a thing called membership, because it just means we know very clearly um, this person is a part of this church and are, have put themselves under the authority and leadership of um, the elders at MRC. Um, Hebrews 13. The next one then, Acts 20 and verse 28. We'll do some more in Acts 20 in a bit. In a moment, in fact, um, Paul says to the Ephesian elders, Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. God has made them overseers and shepherds. The precious church which he bought with his own blood. And then we'll be the five. To the elders among you, I appeal, as a, I appeal as a fellow elder and a witness of Christ's sufferings who also will share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them, not because you must, but because you're willing. As God wants you to be, not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve, not lording over those entrusted to you, but being an example to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. And we'll come to this in a moment, but there's a language of livestock, of shepherds and sheep. Um, and um, shepherds are to be, again we'll come to this in a bit, but they are to lovingly watch over the sheep who have been entrusted to them um, in local churches. So you've got this tension there between um, the whole church at times being accountable, but also then leaders at times being accountable as well. Um, we'll come on to we can perhaps ask some questions in a bit as to uh, voting and that kind of thing what goes on there and why and why some things and not other things um, but in the same way that every single church member is to um, to have a, have a role to play in terms of protecting truth um, and dealing with falsehood or dealing with um, sin within the church body. So at the same time, every single church member is called to practice submitting to King Jesus. So I have to submit to King Jesus, as you do. And that's something that we all have to do. He is the chief shepherd, we are all sheep. And yet he places under shepherds, um, over his church, to, um, to be his representative in some sense. Um, for them, fallible there we are. The issue is striking the balance of how we do this. Because there is a tension. Um, both things are there in Scripture. I think that's quite clear. The, the issue is how we, we sort this out. There's a danger of going one end rather than the other. So if you go towards, um, too far towards kind of congregationalism, then at church meetings you vote on things like the colour of carpets um, or curtains. And everybody has to have their say and everybody has to have a vote and everybody has to have a... But, if you look at the passages where congregationalism at least is, is pushed towards, I'm not sure whether colour of carpets matters that much in terms of the, the wider role of the church. I mean, I've been in church meetings now at Magdalen Road where um, everybody who knew anything about printers um, were <laughs> felt it was right for them to um, explain what they knew about printers because we had to buy a new church printer. Um, and it was awful. So, so the danger you go too far this end, and then there's a yeah there are problems there. Go too far the other way, and you get abusive elders who 
who, who are overbearing and who lord it over others. Um, and there are dangers there as well. Um, if any of you follow the kind of Christian news in the States, then there have been a number of pastors recently who have been removed um, for just that sense, um, which is bad and wrong. It seems to me, as I kind of try and hold these two things together, that the Lord Jesus, in his wisdom, sort of opts for something in the middle. Elder-led, but congregationally governed. Um, And that seems to satisfy the biblical mandate, I think, um, more than going either this end or either this end. And different church streams will veer towards this end or towards this end as well. Um, different denominations, some will be more sort of congregational and everybody will get a chance to say and everybody will have a vote and leader, leadership will be minimised um, or at the other side then you've got the congregation who say very little basically and it's just um, run by sort of set apart clergy who do their thing and um, there's much more perhaps of a consumer mentality and we want to be a, a family where everybody's involved we want to be um, not a restaurant but a family meal as you well know. Um, any questions there? Or shall I crack on with eldership? We're about halfway through and we're making good time, but there, is, there are opportunities for questions if that helps. We're not going to start voting on carpets. That's okay. <laughs> We will think next week about why we are an independent church but in a fellowship um, for that very reason. No, it's really helpful. Let's think about elders. Um, why don't you do a bit of work? Uh, Acts 20, if you look at those, well, that passage really, but I've tried, tried to zoom you in on the key verses. Um, and it's a sort of simple question, which is how are they described there? If you want, or you can treat it together. I mean, it's not, it's not that tricky. Go on, so, Tom, you said shepherds. Shepherds, overseers. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, verse 17. Sorry, I'm glad you had that. Sir. Thank you, yeah. He, it's interesting, he's talking about the same people, um, and yet he, he talks about them in different ways. Which is striking. I think there's an interchange of oil. There is an interchangeability of terms. Um, just to sort of help you in terms of where we get different names for church leaders as well, um, at least from this here, the elder words um, um, in Greek is where we get presbyter from. Um, so if you've got a Presbyterian um, background, Presbyteros word, elder and presbyter are the same word. Well, our translation puts presbyteros as elder, basically. Um, overseer is sometimes used as bishop, um, and shepherd is essentially where we get pastor from. And I think what's going on is that Paul, as he speaks to the Ephesian elders here, he's leaving them. It's tearful, it's the kind of climactic summary of his ministry there. And he is um, outlining different angles of their ministry and their role. So an elder essentially means an old person. You had elders in, um, in Israel, if you remember, the lead, heads, heads of the families. Um, and so with that idea comes maturity, um, wisdom, I think a sort of steadfast character, um, dependability, authority. That's the kind of, we think elder, we're we're meant to think that. Um, The overseer or bishop 
I think, highlights the, the leadership aspects. Um, so, oversight doesn't mean that you miss things. Oversight means that you oversee things. And I always think that's a slight um, amusing fact that we use oversight in a negative way, um, whereas actually overseeing is a... Anyway. Um, the term, the, the, the actual the word, um, was used in secular Greek culture of the time, and it was used of city administrators and commissioners. So it's kind of leadership. So if elder is sort of wisdom and maturity, um, then overseer slash bishop um, is a sort of spiritual leadership and direction type slant. And then the shepherd thing, um, we've said, you get the poemon word, which leads to and pastor, and again, rich biblical imagery in terms of what it means to feed and care for and look after the flock. And so Jesus is the chief shepherd, um, but God is also described as a shepherd at the end of Genesis, um, and we are sheep, we are his flock. Um, you get the pastor word as well, particularly um, Ephesians 4.11, pastor teachers, that's a passage you might know where God gives these four word ministries. Um, I think two relevant for the time and two from the previous era, if you like. Um, But you get pastor teachers and evangelists who prepare God's people for works of service. That's just a general thing where we would say at Maudlin Road there's an interchangeability um, of of term. Essentially there are church leaders and they can be described in different ways. Different traditions and different streams of the church have taken those in different ways. But I think somewhere like Acts 20 is very interesting where you see that interchangeability within one passage. Um, There's different ideas being used of one set of people rather than bishops, for example, who oversee everything. So, again, more on that in future weeks. What should an elder be like? We'll look at what should they be like, and then we'll look at what should what ought they do as well. Um, and you can tell me if there are other things that elders ought to do, or indeed other things that they ought to be like. Um, I've zoomed in on Titus and Timothy, which are the two key passages for eldership. Um, why don't we read them? Enough of me talking. Does somebody want to read Titus, and does somebody want to read Timothy, please? Here is a trustworthy saying, whoever aspires to be an overseer desires a noble task. Now the overseer is to be above reproach, faithful to his wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own family well. See that his children obey him, and he must do so in a manner worthy of a full respect. If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. He must also have a good reputation with outsiders, so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. Titus. The reason I left you in Crete was that you might put in order what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. An elder must be blameless, faithful to his wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Since an overseer manages God's household, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy and disciplined. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught, so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. Thank you. Um, I think I'm going to have a session later on in terms of um, men and the fact that we're a complementarian church and how that works out. Um, so I'm going I'm to slightly duck that for now. We can chat to me afterwards, that is absolutely fine. Um, 
But the four aspects then that we've outlined, really, I should have relationship with self and family for number one. So if you want to add a little and family in there, that's great. Because it seems to be essentially that an, an elder or an overseer ought to be an exemplary model in the fact that they can manage themselves. Okay. Often in leadership nowadays, people talk about the need to lead yourself before you then lead others. I'll say that seems to be very true, very clear here. Um, Richard Baxter, who was a um, a book called The Reformed Pastor, um, talks of having oversight of ourselves. And so when we can manage self, then we're to manage family before you can manage God's family. Which maybe is why the family metaphor is so important, as Paul kind of pulls those things in. Um, How can you um, manage God's household when you can't be able to manage your own household, your children are um, disobedient or um, that kind of stuff so the title and the six so they're to manage more wind to manage themselves and their house Um, and there's a list of kind of character things here, so they're to be blameless uh, above reproach think kind of teflon Um, they're to be faithful to their wives to have kids who are um, believing, or I think you've probably got, I've not got my Bible open here, but the, the footnote. What's the footnote for Titus 1 and verse 6? Is it faithful? Trustworthy. Trustworthy, faithful, believe. I mean, it, it's a sense of your. Your, your family not dishonouring the gospel. That's probably helpful way of perhaps putting it or thinking about it. Um, I think that's particularly true actually if, again, if you think about context of, of Crete where people are described as um, like lying, gluttons and brutes, bad behaviour, that kind of stuff. So within that context there's a particular emphasis perhaps on the blamelessness and not being wild and disobedient. Um, not overbearing, not quick <coughs> to drunkenness, not, <coughs> not pursuing dishonest game, not selfish, but rather those who serve, who love what is good. Self-controlled, upright, holy and disciplined. Um, in one sense, elders are just meant to be normal believers. Um, so there's a sense in which um, we shouldn't look at that and think, you know, that's never for me but actually because that's just a normal Christian. That's just normal, part of the family. Um, what's striking, um, and we'll come on to this in a moment as well, is that we often have a tendency within, I don't know what this means, our church circles, um, to look for gifts first. So particularly perhaps where we are in a kind of more evangelical stream, to, to look for those who have Bible teaching gifts. Um, and if they're an amazing Bible teacher, but have an anger issue, or whatever it might be, then we can kind of overlook it because we think their, their gifting kind of trumps character. Um, the thing that's really striking though here is that character is the most important thing. We'll come on to what the gift is in a second. Yeah. Elders are pretty run of the mill. But they're to have a character um, that reflects the Lord. There's nothing about being a super Christian, particularly. Um, but it's just someone who is uh, godly in the way that they live. They can um, oversee themselves and their family in a servant hearted, loving way. Um, we'll come on to the gifting thing in a second. The other one is relationship with, out, with outsiders. So the idea of being hospitable. Um, so you get it in 1 Timothy and verse 2. Respectable, hospitable, able to teach. Um, you get it in Titus 1 and verse 8. Hospitable. Which is interesting, you get it in 1 Timothy 3 and verse 7 as well. A good reputation with outsiders, I think. 
Hospitality is an interesting one. Um, there's a, there are some interesting books at the moment coming out in terms of how to reach our increasingly secular culture. Um, and what's interesting actually is that some of these are American books too, so they're, I think probably they're 10 years behind us depending on where you are in the States. Um, but the, the basic the answer they're giving is hospitality. Um, if you want to reach people now, then let them into your home and show them what the gospel looks like and, and speak of Jesus to them. So it's sort of less in terms of big evangelistic thing, but just much more small-scale, grassroots, love people, um, community, hospitality, look after outsiders, that kind of stuff. Um, Hospitality seems to sit somewhere between the character thing and the gifting thing that we'll see in a moment. Um, it's about being a, a people person, someone who loves the outsider, who looks after folk. Um, I don't think it's about having an amazing dinner party. Um, I don't think it's about, uh, yeah, you know, someone comes over and your house is immaculate and you can just cook an amazing cock of that. Um, it's actually just bringing people into your orbit and loving them well. Um, the word probably had much more to do with being hospitable to strangers um, than it kind of does now. Um, you could chat to Richard and Catherine Weston on a future week about hospitality and why that's so important with international students, but just increasingly within our culture as we're so isolated. Um, and we don't do things bodily anymore, as we've been thinking about, um, but actually bringing people into your house giving them food, loving them, and speaking of Christ. Um, yeah, is it getting more, more important? Probably so. Uh, so there's two things in terms of character, relationship with self and family, relationship with outsiders. Um, teaching, then, is the gift that he mentions. Um, so in Titus, it's there in verse 9, he must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it's been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. at a moment. And then the other one is verse 2 as well. Uh, able to teach in 1 Timothy. You see, to shepherd, to feed and protect the flock means being able to, to handle God's word well, to sniff out untruth, to guard your flock, um, to serve out truth to your people, to your sheep. Um, which is why teaching is so important. Um, so whilst there may be a responsibility of the congregation as a whole, ultimately, to say, no, that is not true, that is not the gospel, Galatians 1, um, actually what's important is that your leaders need to be those who, are, who should have spotted that in the first place. Um, and you shouldn't be teaching those things or allowing those things to be taught. Um, with that, I want to draw a slight distinction. I think all elders are to be able to teach. That is a, that is a definite thing. Um, but I think there's teaching and there's teaching as well. So drawing a distinction between elders and elders. In some um, church circles you might talk about teaching elders and ruling elders. I think that's a slightly unhelpful um, distinction to make. But if you go to 1 Timothy 5 verse 17. This is where you get this idea from. The elders who direct the affairs of the church well are worthy of double honour, especially those whose work is preaching and teaching. So it seems like within an eldership team, you might have those who, who particularly preach and teach. Everybody, it seems, ought to be able to, to manage and to lead and to serve and to direct the church. But there are those particularly who are set apart to teach um, which I guess would be me and Dave for his three years with us. Um, yeah. Having said that, all elders are to be able to teach. So that might be, that might be from the front in, in a sort of preach, that might be um, in a one-to-one setting or a small group setting, but having an, an understanding of the word, being able to teach others and to be able to protect the sheep um, from untruth as well. Um, Yeah, so that, and it's partly because I have the opportunity and the privilege to focus my time on that, and the church has asked me to do that. Um, 
the teaching thing is interesting, and I think if you track it right back, it's because Jesus governs his church by his word. So if you think about that, actually, it is his church, um, and where we as a as humanity walk out on God at the beginning, we don't want his word over us. So now as his gathered people, we come back under his word, Ephesians 4.11, pastor, teachers and evangelists, apostles and prophets as well. Um, back under his word, he governs his church by his word. And so he puts elders in place who are able to open up his word and to guard his word. Which is primarily why um, elders teach at Morton Road. Because that's part of our job. Now we have Spurgeons and we have other guys and we want to be able to um, train people. And, but primarily it seems to be the role of elders to do the teaching. You just see that through the New Testament. Again, different churches do it in different ways, but primarily it seems to me that elders are those who teach. Um, one final bit of a jigsaw, and then we'll just press pause for a moment. Um, the final bit is, uh, I've not got the, uh, I have, there we go, um, 1 Tim 3, 1. Um, an aspiration to be an overseer. I guess you can have all the things in place, in one sense, but but you might not want to. Um, there'd be great questions as to ask as to why that is. Um, one question I like to sometimes ask people is, what would be stopping you being an elder in five years or serving in, a, in this kind of capacity in five years? Um, and different people will have different ideas and thoughts. But it seems to me that if essentially an elder is just a normal but exemplary Christian, um, then there ought to be something that people at least consider... Um, it may be that it's not, it's not suitable because of time, timing and responsibilities and just the general um, um, things of life. Different ages and stages will mean that perhaps it's not so suitable. But the desire thing is an interesting one. Um, let's press pause. And six things, what the elders actually do. As we've said, firstly, there to be a people who um, study and teach the Bible and refute falsehood. Um, various passages and verses there, some of which, most of which we've already looked at and thought about this evening. Um, seems to me elders are to be those who pray. So one of the key things in Acts, if we're taking the apostles as a sort of paradigmatic of um, eldership within the early church, then they're to be set aside for preaching and praying um, and therefore deacons are raised up to, to look after some of the more practical needs within the church, um, although they are spiritually mature people, the deacons. Um, James 5 as well talks about um, praying for the sick. Um, as we saw in 1 Peter 5 already, there's a care for Christians that um, elders ought to engage in. We are shepherds who look after sheep, and therefore when sheep are sick or when sheep are straying, um, or life is hard for sheep, then we're to be those who, who look after them and love them and care for them. Um, so in our elders meetings every month or so, month, more than a month often, um, we spend a chunk of time praying for people and um, concerned for people. As we've already said, fourthly, there's a, a directing and vision and ruling and leading and managing, but not in a lording it over way, but rather a loving and serving way. Uh, there's a sense in which um, the leaders of that have a part to play when it comes to church discipline. Um, but having said that, it's still the, the congregation as a whole who, who enact, enact that and deal with that. Um, and then just lastly, 2 Tim 2, 1-2. Um, just an interesting one. I, I, back in the day, worked for an organisation called um, UCCF, who lots of you will know of. Um, and 2 Tim 2 2 is talking about um, uh, training up others who essentially you can pass the baton on to in, in ministry and relay, um, like a sort of relay type thing. I'm just going to find the passage. Um, uh, and the things you have heard me say, Timothy, this is Paul talking to Timothy, I'm in the presence of many witnesses and trust to reliable people who will also be qualified to teach others. So you've got kind of four generations there, essentially, of, of gospel teaching. Um, of course, Timothy was a, a minister, a church minister. 
most likely, um, in Ephesus. And therefore, actually, the people who he is training up will, I think, implication be others in leadership who will therefore be elders. So I think there's a sense in which, um, within the church context that Timothy is receiving this letter into, there ought to be a training up of, of future elders that happens. That ought to be the sort of sixth aspect um, of what elders do. Um, we often sort of rip these letters out of context and forget they are written to a person in a church, a minister in a church, and just sort of um, apply them to, well, I think anyway, us as um, people who work for a parachurch organisation, which is fine in one sense, but I wonder if ultimately, actually, the church context um, helps us most and brings most life. Um, let me pray for us. Lead us in prayer. We're not priests, we don't need to pray for you, goodness me. <laughs> uh, let me lead us in prayer. And then we'll uh, have any more questions or chat or biscuits, should you so desire. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your um, body, the church. We thank you that the church is not our idea. And so we long that we might be a healthy church in such a way that um, a cynical watching world sees your your beauty through transformed lives, uh, through the way that we love each other, through the way that we interact. Father, I want to thank you for um, eldership at Morden Road. Thank you for um, godly, servant-hearted um, Christians, um, men who love you, love your people, who sacrifice much time for, um, yeah, for the church here. I want to thank you too for the church family that you've given us, the congregation that you've given us. Um, thank you for um, a desire to love and to serve one another, to live out the gospel. Pray that increasingly we would be a church um, who reflects something of who you are and what you are like. And so that those looking in from the outside... Um, just can't do away with the gospel because they see the difference that it makes for your people here. They see your power at work and just the normal nitty-gritty stuff of everyday life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.